Let's bring it in. Bring it back in. All right. Well, we are continuing our series, our four-week series, looking at our mission statement, our our vision, and our core values. Uh, We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. It's on page 984 in your pew Bibles, and uh, these yellow Bibles belong to us. So if you do not own a Bible, uh, this is our gift to you. We would love for you uh, to keep one of those. We're going to be talking this afternoon about being called to love God and others. Well, how do we measure love? Is love something that is quantifiable? Uh, can, we, can we measure how much we love something? Uh, maybe I say, you know, I love the Packers with like, well, somebody else, somebody else might say, you know, maybe Zach or Jesse, like, I love the Packers maybe with like 51% of my heart. You know, maybe I'm like more like 80% of my heart. Um, but how do we, you know, how do we know like, oh, do you, you know, you watch all the games and you buy the gear and like you support them whether they win or lose. Like if they don't make it to the playoffs and they start firing all their coaches, you still support them. Like that means you really love the Green Bay Packers. Well, love is a, love is a tricky thing, isn't it? to figure out how, how much we love something or how we love something. And there are different kinds of love, which I think also makes it a very complicated thing. You might be familiar with C.S. Lewis's book called The Four Loves. He talks about four different kinds of loves, and we see these different kinds of loves in the Bible. The first one is agape love, which is often we talk about it being unconditional love. It's love that comes from God. The second one is phileo, which is brotherly love. It's the the friendship love, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's where it gets the name if you didn't know that. Eros is romantic love. It's the love between a husband and a wife. And then the fourth love is storge, which is like family bonds. It's affection. Uh, It's not eros love. It's not romantic love, but it's a love of, of being bonded and connected to people. So like a parent to child love. And all of these loves, they look different in different relationships, which leads us to, again, just say that love is a, is a tricky thing, and it's a messy thing. And if we're honest, we've all probably been hurt by people in our lives who have claimed that they love us. We've seen the words come out, but then we've seen actions not back it up. Or maybe we've been the one who has done the hurting. We've said, I love you, and then the way we've lived has not backed that up. I think that we would all admit that if we're left to our own strength, to our own desires, to our own motivations, that we usually make a mess out of love. And I believe that this often flows from a wrong understanding of how love works. If we are Christians, we're called to love God and others. That is this agape love. It's the unconditional love that comes from God, and it's not something that we can earn ourselves. We see this in the scriptures, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were dead in our sins, even when we were rebels, Christ died for us. 
In Ephesians 2.4, which we've we talked about as we were going through Ephesians, and we've come back to this verse and this part of Ephesians over and over, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. It comes after the section that talks about us being dead in our sins, being children of wrath. But God, his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive, he raised us up, he seated us with Christ. So God has great love toward us. But that doesn't mean that we are then just passive recipients of that love and that we do nothing in response. That we just sit there and say, oh, it's so great, God loves me. Love is not just a feeling. It is more than a feeling, and I'm not going to sing the song again. (laughs) But I did listen to it this morning. Um, Our identity as those loved by God fuels our calling. Our identity fuels our calling to love him and to love others. Just consider a few of these scriptures. 1 John 4, 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus in John fifteen nine and 10 says, if the fa- As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We abide and we keep his commandments because Jesus first abided and kept his commandments. John fourteen fifteen, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then finally, 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And don't miss this last part. And his commandments are not burdensome. We go over this. We talk about this over and over. This is so important. We have to get this right. Because if we don't get this right, we don't get the gospel right. It's this reminder that our justification comes before our sanctification. The work that God does in our lives is what gives us the strength to go out and live the Christian life. It's all about him. It's all about what he has done for us in Christ. If you look at the front of your worship guide, I have a quote here from Sinclair Ferguson. It's from a book called Devoted to God, Blueprints for Sanctification. I love when the Lord does this. I I was not planning to use this book. I just picked it up. I've I've had the copy for a while, but I just picked it up because I was interested in the topic. And I'm flipping through, and I look in the back, and it turns out there's 10 chapters, and each chapter is on a a chunk of Scripture from the New Testament. And one of the chapters is on Colossians 3, 1 to 17, which is the passage that I was already planning to preach on this week. And so this book, Devoted to God, we've talked about that theme, right, in Acts 2, how the people were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to fellowship, they were devoted to breaking bread, they were devoted to prayers. This is a great look at what it means to be devoted to God and to live our lives for him, and we're going to see that in our passage. But this quote here on the front of our worship guides, I think, is a great reminder of what I've been saying 
He says it is a first principle of the gospel that unless God has set his love upon us long before we turned to him, we would never have come to Christ. His choice of us preceded our choice of him. He loved us before we loved him. He had compassion on us before we showed any interest in trusting in him. He has been kind to us. He has been gentle with us. He has shown us divine meekness in Christ. He has been patient with us. No wonder that God's chosen people should react to others in exactly the same way. No wonder that we should want to dress spiritually like him and grow in godliness reflecting his moral beauty. We're going to see that idea of dressing spiritually like him in our passages. We see being called to put off certain things and to put on certain things. Our main idea this morning, if you're taking notes, if you want to write this down, main idea is that our love for God and others is secured through God's grace in our justification and in our union with Christ. We repeat that. Our love for God and others is secured through God's grace in our justification and in our union with Christ. And our love for God and others is also demonstrated and authenticated through our sanctification and our growth in Christ-likeness. Our love for God and others is demonstrated and authenticated through our sanctification and our growth in Christ-likeness. So let's go to our passage today. Let's see how the scriptures speak of these things, how God reminds us of the love he has for us and how he desires for us to grow in Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come this morning, or this afternoon, to your word, we pray that you would open our eyes. God, that you would reveal your glory to us that your word would dwell in us richly, that as we are taught and admonished by you, we would teach and admonish one another, that we would sing and praise you for who you are and for what you've done. God, that you would unite us together, that we would be a people who are guided by your word, a people who love you, a people who serve you, and a people who go out and have an impact on our communities. Lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to look at this passage in three different sections, three parts. First, we're going to look at love's power source and motivation in verses 1 through 4. Love's power source and motivation. Just as Paul does in Ephesians, he grounds his imperatives in the indicatives. What does that mean? We've talked about this, right? The imperatives are the commands. The imperatives are the things that as Christians we are called to do and we are commanded to do. And those imperatives never just come out of thin air. They're always grounded in indicatives. Indicatives are the things that are true, the things that God has done for us. Since you are this, therefore do this. And that's always the pattern that we see with Paul. He does it in Ephesians. He's doing it again here in Colossians. In these four verses here, there are four indicatives, four things that are true. And there are two imperatives, things that we must do in response to the things that are true. First, right in the beginning, he starts off, the first indicative is, If then you have been raised with Christ... This is an already truth. It's something that is true. If you are a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up and he seated with us with Christ in the heavenly realms. That is already true. That is our current reality. Last week we looked at Colossians chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. A little bit later on in chapter 2, Paul speaks of this same reality of having been raised with Christ. In Colossians 2, 11 to 15, he says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, right? We've heard that language before, Ephesians chapter 2. 
you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. So we no longer answer to the rulers and the authorities in the spiritual realm. We no longer answer to the world and the flesh and the devil. They have all been disarmed. And that word there that Paul uses for disarmed is the same word that he uses telling us to put off the old ways. They've been disarmed, they've been put off, they've been done away with. We no longer seek those things. Instead, we seek the things that are above. We set our minds on the things that are above because we have already been raised with Christ. Those then are the two imperatives in this section. Seek things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of this earth. Because you are already raised up, you already are with Christ seated with him in the heavenly places, seek those things. Don't don't think in worldly ways. Don't set your minds and your hearts on the things of this world. Set your minds on the things that are above. The second indicative is that you have died. We saw that in that passage there, that we are buried with Christ in baptism. We have died. Our lives are hidden. We We are with Christ Hidden with Christ in God. That is the the next indicative. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, We've talked about this a little bit, and um, I decided to print something off to make this a little more visible so that you can kind of see what it looks like. So in the Greek, this word hidden is in the perfect tense. That means it's something that happened in the past. It's already completed, and it has future ramifications. It has, future, um, it has a future working in our lives. So we are hidden with Christ in God. That is something that God has done for us when he raised us up and he seated us with Christ. That's already done, but it's going on for eternity. It has future ramifications for us. And then the fourth thing is that you will appear or you will be revealed. Uh, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That word for appear is also to be revealed. So it's this, the the, um, being raised up, dying, being hidden with Christ. Those are things that are, are already true. Those are things that have already happened. And then this, when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. That's that that not yet, it's that thing that we look forward to that hasn't happened yet. So there's, there's already things that are true, and then there's not yet things that are true. Well, you might be saying, well, that's great, Pastor, but why don't I live like these things are true? Why don't we always do things that are in line with these? Why don't we live as if these things are true? Why do we struggle with the same sins over and over in our lives? Why do we struggle to love God and to love others in the way that we are called to? Well, I think a lot of times it's because we're not drawing from the correct power source. We're looking here at love's power source and motivation. Often we're not drawing from the correct 
power source. I don't know how many of you guys have had experience uh, trying to maybe like fix a kid's toy, put some batteries in a kid's toy so that you can get it working again. I see people nodding their heads and like, uh, total frustration, right? Maybe it was yourself when you were a kid, like trying to, like Christmas time, right? You open up this present, you get this great present, batteries not included. Uh, so you're rummaging through all the drawers looking for the batteries. What, this thing takes a 9-volt? Like, no, we don't have 9 volts in our house, right? Or now the fancy toys, they have all those little, like, watch battery things. And just the frustration, right, of like, ah, I can't get this toy to work. Like, I don't have the right batteries. I don't, or maybe you, you know, you go and you buy the cheapest batteries there are, and they, like, run out after an hour. And it's just this frustration, right, of, like, not being able to find the right power source or having a weak power source. You're not able to get this thing to work the way that you want to. There's a frustration there. And if these things that we've been talking about, if those four indicatives of what Christ has done, if those things are not true of you, then you need to stop right here. If your view of sanctification, if you think it's just going to be about self-effort, if my growth is going to come from me being the power source, from me being the one who fuels my Christian life versus coming from union with Christ and coming from power through the indwelling spirit, then you're going to be like that person with the toy. You're going to be frustrated, there's going to be failure, and there's going to be disappointment. If you're a Christian and you're relying on yourself for your growth, I want to implore you, to not rely on yourself, to rely on the one who saved you, to rely on the one who raised you up, to rely on the one who put his spirit within you and said, I will be your strength. I will be your power. Live through me. Abide with me. Follow me. And if you're not a Christian, you're not going to become a Christian because you try on your own power, to answer the questions or to figure things out. It's about surrendering to Christ, surrendering to the one who died so that you could live. Believing in him, trusting in him, giving your life to him, and not trying to live on your own strength and your own power. If you're not there yet, we want you to be there. We want to talk to you about what it means to trust in Christ and to live for him, for him to be your power source. We've seen this, our power source and our motivation. Well, let's look at how this works out in our lives. The second part is the death of old love. Verses five through nine, the death of old love. First, we need to kill our earthly way of thinking. And we already saw that in verse 2 where he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then starting in verse 5, kill the earthly way of loving. These are the, the mind thing, the, the don't set your minds on the things of the earth. That's talking about our head. Now we're talking about our heart, killing our earthly way of living. He says here, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These things are the earthly way of loving. 
These things are the way that the world tries to express love. This is not the way that those who are loved by God define love. Because of these things, it says in verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But we are those, we already know, right? We've talked about this. Ephesians 2, children of wrath, but God, he's raised us up. The wrath of God is coming, but we are those who have escaped God's wrath as his children, as those who he has put his love on. The third thing is that we should kill our earthly way of speaking. Verse 8, now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So our thinking, our hearts, and then we know, as Jesus said, out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak. We are to put these things away. This is another imperative. Verse 8, put them all away. These things that are not honoring to God, these things that are part of our old way of living. We are to tell the truth. We are to love one another. We are to speak to one another in a way that honors God because we have already put off our old self. Well, you might be asking, okay, you keep talking about doing this, talking about putting off the old self. What does that even mean? What does that look like? One of my favorite quotes comes from John Owen, who's a 17th century English Puritan pastor and author. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And where does he get that from? It's Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if according to the Spirit, if by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Don't fight the battle in the flesh. Don't put to death the flesh with the flesh. If by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, how do we kill something that is so invasive? How do we kill something that is so powerful like sin? I remember when I was a kid, uh, along the side of my grandma's house, she had ferns alongside the house. And I remember my mom and my grandma always talking about like, how it's so hard to get rid of ferns and to kill ferns. Uh, so I was thinking about that this week, and I did a little research. And they were saying, if you want to... If you want to not use like really nasty chemicals, like you can spray some um, vinegar, vinegar and water on them, and then they'll start to kind of wilt away. But the problem is there's spores in the fronds that even when they die, like those spores are going to get down into the soil, and they're just going to continue to grow. Really, like the only way you can get rid of ferns is you have to dig them out all the way down, dig out all the roots, and get rid of probably all of the soil because those spores are just going to continue to get down in that soil. And it just takes a complete removal to get rid of them. That is hard work. <laughs> it's not going to happen by just taking your little spray bottle and trying to you know, do a little bit on the surface. If you are not already dead and made alive in Christ, then you cannot kill sin in your life. 
If the Spirit of God is not in you, if the Spirit of God is not your power source, then you trying to, trying to fight sin is like trying to take a little spray bottle and kill some ferns. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. And you're going to be utterly disappointed. And the truth is, for us, for many of us, we probably do need to, we do need to try harder. We need to put in some more effort. But it's not a moralistic trying harder. It's not a pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps harder. It's a gospel-centered trying harder. It's, it's a gospel-centered living. It's a gospel-centered working out our salvation with fear and trembling. To try to remove all encouragement, all spurring one another on for growth, for a fear that we're preaching some kind of works righteousness, that's nonsense. We need to look at this passage, and we need to be spurred on, and we need to say, I need to live by the Spirit, and I do need to put off the old self. I do need to put on the new self. We do need to be more devoted to God and to growing in our relationships with Him. And we saw last week in Colossians 1.19, Paul talked about the need to toil and struggle. But how did he toil and struggle? Do you remember what he said? with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We don't toil and struggle with our own effort. We don't toil and struggle with our own power. We toil and struggle with the power that Christ powerfully works within us, the energy that works within us. He is the power source. If you're feeling tension in all of this, that's probably a good thing. If you're feeling like, okay, I don't understand how this really works. How can I struggle with all of his energy that so powerfully works within me? If you're asking that question, you're in a good place. The Christian life is full of things that seem like they don't make sense. Full of things that seem like paradoxes, right? We talk about God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility and how those two things come together and sometimes it's, it's hard for us to make sense of, of what that looks like and how those things work together. We talk about Paul, right? Being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How can you be full of sorrow and be rejoicing at the same time? Our sanctification and our growth in Christ is not something that just magically happens. We're called to abide in him. We're called to obey him. We're called to love him and love others. So let's see what that looks like as we look at the birth of new love. The birth of new love, verses 10 to 17. In verse 10, he, Paul talks about, we've put on the, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image, image of its creator. This idea of being renewed is something that Paul talks about elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 4.16 in the passage where he's talking about treasures and jars of clay. Talking about our lives as being like these jars of clay and we're cracked and we struggle and we go through difficulties. He says later on in that passage, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's this idea here of, of God doing a work in us, God renewing us. 
It's a, it is a daily struggle. It is a daily grind to, to wake up and say, okay, I'm going to put off the old self, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die to my ways of living, and I'm going to put on the new self. I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to walk with him. It is a struggle, but that power, that renewal, it comes from God. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Again, here's just an emphasis that it's not the, the, it's not about our differences. It's not that one group is more privileged over another group. One group is more able to be sanctified. One group is more able to be spirit-filled than another group. Paul is saying we are all unified in Christ, and Christ is all and in all. Then put on new love, starting in verse 12. Paul, he, just, he cannot stop reminding us of who we are. Again, it's these indicatives, it's these reminders of of what God has done for us. Put on then as God's chosen ones. The word here for for chosen ones is eklektos, it's where we get the word elect from. Again, Ephesians chapter 1, talking about God choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Put these things on because you are God's chosen ones, you are God's elect, holy That's where we get the word saints from. We've talked about that. We are God's people who are set apart for him. We are called to be set apart. We are called to live holy lives. And then beloved. Holy and beloved. This is interesting because if you read this in the English, beloved kind of looks like an adjective, doesn't it? Holy. You're holy, right? It's an adjective, beloved. Well, actually, beloved is... Again, I love my, my perfect tense. Beloved is actually a perfect passive participle. It's saying it's something that was done in the past. You were a passive recipient of it, and it's ongoing into the future. A better reading of that should be those who are dearly loved. It's saying you are chosen by God, you are holy, and you are dearly loved And that is something that God did in the past. And that is who you are now and who you will continue to be. So we're hidden with Christ in God, right? And we are those who are dearly loved. So that, you know, not to get too technical and say, oh, the translators like did a poor job there, but they kind of (laughs) did. That we don't really, and it's, we can't really see that in the English very well most of the time, that perfect tense, but that idea that that, that is something we are loved by God and he has, he has chosen us and set us apart for himself and loved us, we are secure. And that should give us great hope and great joy. He says then, put on, what are we to put on? Compassionate hearts, right? Love for one another. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. We can't withhold forgiveness from each other if we have been forgiven by God. And then we're told, verse 14, above all these, put on love. 
above all these things that are just listed. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, forgiveness, bearing with one another. Above all of those, put on love. Love is the thing that binds all of those things together in perfect harmony. 1 Corinthians 13, many of us are familiar with that. If you've been to a wedding, you've heard that verse read probably every wedding you've been to. You know, Paul's talking about, I can do all these things. If I, if I do all these wonderful things, but I don't have love, then it doesn't matter. All these wonderful things that I can do, even for the Lord, if I don't have love, those things don't matter. And then it concludes, you know, these things remain, right? Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Paul here is talking about the importance of love. Above all these things, we need love because that is what binds everything together. That is what makes everything work together. Well, there are three more imperatives in this passage that, identi- that speak about our corporate identity and speak specifically to our core values. If you look at the back of your worship guide, we have there under the, the passage, under the Colossians 3, 117, we are loved by God, therefore we worship him with our whole lives and we are compelled to love others. So those are two of our core values. We talk about loving God and loving others. We worship him with our whole lives. That's that vertical element, right? We come here on Sundays and we worship God. It's vertical. It's our, our focus is on him. But it's not only that vertical element. We're here worshiping together, right? We're compelled to love others, and that's that horizontal element. So we have both the vertical and the horizontal working together. We see those things here, in, starting in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. That's the first imperative. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, because we are called into one body. There's an emphasis here on our unity, on us being one in Christ. Our unity, our forgiveness, our love, these things are what we are called to. The second, in the end of verse 15 there, and be thankful. That's the second imperative. Thanksgiving is not something that we just do every fourth Thursday of November once a year, right? Thanksgiving is something that we live every day. As Christians, we live that out all the time. We are thankful to God for who he is and what he has done for us. And then finally, the third imperative is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Our worship is Christ-centered as we follow his word, as we teach, as we admonish, as we sing with thankful hearts to God. And then Paul ties it all up here really nicely with a big bow in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. At the end of the day, all of these things that we do, all these things that we're called to do, it's all from him and it's all for him. We do it for him. We do it for his glory, not for our own. 
I would encourage you, this is, this is a great passage. There's so much in here. There's so much more in here that we weren't even to, able to dig into. Uh, I would encourage you to go back and, and pray through this and ask the Lord, you know, God, how do you want me to live this out? What does it look like for me in my life to put off the old and to put on the new? And I want to close with how Ferguson closes his chapter on this passage. I think it's a helpful reminder for us. It's a little long, but bear with me here. He's summarizing this passage. He says, The old is marked by sin, idolatry, and our worship of self. The new is marked by the enthronement of Jesus and our worship of him. The corporate result of this is that in our Christian fellowship, our Lord Jesus Christ is all and is recognized to be in all. Thus, growing in sanctification means understanding that I am a new man or new woman in Christ, recognizing the traits in my life that are inconsistent with that new identity, and dealing death blows to my sin. So that is putting off the old, putting on the new. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And simultaneously, clothing myself in the grace in the graces of Jesus. He says, when this is true of us, our very presence enhances the lives of others in our church family. In addition, outsiders are attracted to the fellowship to which we belong, even if they do not yet understand why. It is because the Holy Church is attracting them as the divine magnet it was meant to be. How different this is from the individualism, self-interest, and narcissism that so many social commentators see as dominant features of modern society. In sharp contrast, success in the Christian life never means that we live for ourselves or see ourselves as superior to others. No, the real success the gospel affects releases us from our self-obsessions and self-interests so that at last we are free in Christ to love and serve others. When this is true, our fellowship becomes a powerful expression of the gospel. It becomes wonderfully attractive and compelling to some, even though others may hate or despise the gospel that produces such grace. But then, if it was that way for Jesus, it will also be that way for those who grow in likeness to him. And that's what this table is all about. It's about putting off the old self. It's about putting on the new self. It's about putting on Christ. It's about growing in likeness to Christ. And it's about saying to the world, we belong to him. We have put off the old ways. We have put off our previous life of walking in this world and walking in sin. And we have put on Christ. We identify with him. Now this is not just a table for people who are members of Living Stone. It's not a table for Presbyterians. It's a table for anyone who says, I have trusted in Christ. He is my savior. He is my salvation. He is my power source to live the Christian life. And we believe that in in coming to the Lord's table, we're not just coming to say, here's some symbolic picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We believe that God meets with us 
We believe that we commune with him in the supper and that we are spiritually strengthened, that we are spiritually energized, that we grow in our faith through this and that we are encouraged to walk and to grow with each other. So we come both as individuals and we come corporately to recognize the Lord, to recognize the body and blood of Christ and to celebrate together. So if you're not yet a Christian, if that's something that you say, I haven't put my trust in Christ, he is not my Savior, uh, we would ask that you do not partake at this time. And if you are interested in hearing more about what it means to walk with Jesus, we would love to talk to you about that. Uh, Parents, you can go get your kids at this time. And if we have the servers come forward, we will have um, this section and... This half come down here, and then that half can go down there. Maybe a few people from here can kind of mingle over there to balance things out.